0: And graciousness. Our passage this morning is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. We'll be reading together the first 13 verses. since my master has taken the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then... You have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is in others, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and Money. The grass withers and the flowers of the field, they all perish. But the word of our God endures forever, and this is God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, even as we have sung, you are our portion forever and forever. For who do we have in heaven but you? And there's nothing on this earth that we desire besides you. Our flesh, our heart may fail, but you, our God, are our strength. You are our portion forever. And so help us, Lord, to live as those who love and serve you and delight in you and know the words, the heart, the experience of Asaph. Father, by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes that we might behold beautiful things out of your law, and that you would, by your Spirit, open our ears as well, so that we might hear what you have to speak to the church. Amen. Well, what's this parable all about, anyway? It's a pretty strange parable. What is it that Jesus would want us to learn from this thief, this manager? And is the world shrewder than the church? Does Jesus really want us to learn from this man? Is he encouraging us to pursue possessions? and unethical business practices? Perhaps you have had these questions and many more as you have read this this parable over the years. And if you're in a bit of a quandary how to interpret this parable, you're not alone. Of all the Lord's parables, this is perhaps the most difficult to understand and to apply to our lives. But this morning, I want to encourage you from the Lord's teaching on the parable of the dishonest manager, and particularly how the future should motivate us how to live in the present, how our future destiny should impact everything you do every day of your lives, in fact, every moment of every day of your lives. Or we could say we are called to live back from the future. So by God's grace, let's seek to unfold the meeting and then apply these eternal truths to our lives. And first, we have the parable, and it's about mismanagement. Jesus tells of this business executive Accused of mismanagement, specifically of wasting his boss's resources, perhaps a misappropriation of funds or even embezzlement. And having found out, the manager then does some quick thinking because he knows that when the books are opened, they will tell the true tale. He will be guilty. And Jesus tells us in verse eight that he is a dishonest manager. Now, it's quite obvious. He's not gonna get a severance package. And not living in America, he's not gonna go and get any unemployment insurance. On top of that, he didn't have the physical stamina to work and he's too proud to beg. He is in quite a dilemma. He's covered all his options, and none of them will provide for him. And so it left him with few options. So then he thinks, he thinks, how can I be provided for? How can I make the very most out of a very bad situation? And that situation is because of my own failings. Suddenly he has an idea. He would go through all his accounts receivable and he would, one by one, go to each debtor, ask them how much they owe, and then he'd cut them a deal. That's brilliant. And this way, when he was fired from the company, he would be able to have all these friends in the community who would help him out. They would take care of him. So, our Lord tells us that one of his clients owned him a 100 measures of oil, and he reduced it in half. Another owed him 80, and he says, cut it by 20%. The master found out what the manager was doing, and his response is actually the most surprising of all. Rather than condemn the manager, he commended the manager for his shrewdness. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The boss thought that his plan was ingenious. He might have said to himself, finally, The manager is using his head. He really does have something to contribute, but it's a little late. He's actually quite clever. And he has some business smarts in him, after all. When push comes to shove, he knew what to do, it was plain brilliance. And Jesus agrees with this manager that he was clever. He was brilliant. He was shrewd. And and Jesus says, for the sons of this world, verse 8, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So how are we supposed to understand such a statement? Well, we need to go back to verse 1 and we need to seek to find out who the audience is. And... Luke tells us, verse 1, he said this to his disciples. He said that to his disciples. So what's he saying? Well, he's not speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, those who often contended with our Lord. He is speaking to his own, and he's saying to them, Sometimes worldly people are more clever in their worldly dealings, in their worldly economy, than my disciples are in their spiritual economy. In other words, disciples learn something from the world's. You need to be wise, you need to be shrewd in spiritual matters, as shrewd as this dishonest manager was in his financial matters. Now what was it exactly that Jesus admired in this dishonest manager? Well, our Lord certainly isn't condoning dishonesty, but he couldn't help to be admired or admired the resourcefulness of this man. This man was planning for his unemployment days. The manager finally got it and he came up with something brilliant. So what was the impetus for this dishonest manager's plan? What brought about this creative juice, as they call it, in this dishonest manager. Well, it was that he would be soon unemployed. He'd be found out. It was his future destiny, that which lie, or that which was um, before him. The time was coming. And as he thought about what that meant for him, very physically, he made plans. He understood the relationship between the future and the present. And so he understood that his unemployment intimately related to the things he needed to be doing right now, and that rather quickly. In other words, he asked himself, in light of being fired, what can I do now, today, so that there will be benefit for me when I am fired, when I'm unemployed? How can I secure the future? Sound like your financial advisor? And Jesus is saying to his disciples, and that includes you and me this morning, that by and large the world does a better job at doing this. Thinking about how their future impacts them currently. And how the church then ought to be thinking like them. How the future ought to impact us now in everyday living. Every decision. The world lives for the here and now. They say, let us drink, as Paul quotes, let us drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So let's live now. Well, the application is pretty clear, isn't it? What's the future for the believer? Well, we've heard it splendidly displayed for us this morning by the pastor in his opening epilogue. It is glory in Emmanuel's land to face, to see the face of our Lord Jesus Christ and to gaze upon his beauty day and night. In fact, he will be our light. There will be no day or night. It is to be in the fullness of joy and to experience no death, no sorrow, no suffering, but everlasting bliss. It is to dwell in the new heavens and new earth where there is righteousness forever. It is to enjoy God. And so eternal glory, heaven is our home. Christ is ours and we shall be with him in his presence and we shall be like him, perfectly righteous, delighting in all that God is for us. And indeed, we say, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. We hardly can wait. But we must wait, at least until the Lord brings us to Himself or returns home. So, the principle that drives the Christian is this Heaven. Our eternal destiny ought to direct us in every decision, every thought, every word, all our lives. What the Christian does with everything he possesses, everything, and every situation he is in, he ought to ask himself. How do I bring eternal destiny, my eternal home, my inheritance, how do I bring that to bear on what I'm doing right now? How do I bring the future into the present with everything I possess and think? How am I going to employ all my wealth, whether physical or spiritual, or mental in light of the fact that my destiny is infinite and my presence here is rather short, very short, very, very short in comparison. Now, these are big questions, aren't they? But the answers to these questions will drastically shape the way you live. It'll shape the here and now, and it'll bless you, and you will be blessed. There will be rewards, our Lord tells us. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, it is so important to use what the Lord has given us now to be faithful in his kingdom, because we are actually building for eternity. And Jesus wants faithfulness in his disciples. And so he applies it in different, three different areas of our lives. Now you can apply this principle to every area of your life, every thought, every decision. All that God has given you in your family, in your children, your grandchildren, all your wealth, your mental capacities, where you are. This is the glorious principle that will direct you. But our Lord applies it specifically in three areas. First, he says in verse 9, faithfulness in wealth. And I tell you, Jesus said, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Unrighteous wealth is your money, your gifts, your possessions, all that God has given you. And it is given to you in stewardship. And thus Jesus looks for faithfulness with the things he has given to us, our wealth. Jesus is saying very clearly to us that we ought to use our worldly wealth to make everlasting friends. How's that for a challenge? Make everlasting friends. Worldly people invest their wealth often in short-term interests, but believers, Jesus says, ought to invest their wealth for long-term interests. So unrighteous wealth here just the things of the world that God stewards us with. Everything from our intellect to our physical possessions, including money. And notice our Lord's perspective on this. It's so interesting. In verse 9, he says, And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, not if it fails, when it fails, our wealth in all its forms will fail us. There's a terminus point for all our wealth, certainly at our death. But you know very well that there's a terminus point That's before our death. Sometimes it's so much earlier if we live longer. Our minds can't keep up with our bodies or our bodies with our minds. But the bottom line is that we can't take our wealth with us. And often, as the Proverbs tells us, that our wealth seems to grow wings and it just flies away. Who hasn't known that? it is that it will fail us sometime. And so we need to be faithful when we have it. Knowing this truth then, our Lord is telling us, how can I use the wealth that God gives to me now so that I might have a return later? Answer, make friends. Make friends for yourself now with this wealth so that later your friends who you've blessed now will welcome you with their open arms into the eternal dwellings. Now that's quite something. That's that's a long-term investment. Perhaps not as long as you think because this life is short. But our Lord is telling us, be faithful to the Lord with the wealth that he has given to us. Our time, our talents, our ability, our gifts, our intellect. And those many lives that that have been blessed by your faithfulness, they'll be waiting for you. They will welcome you into your eternal dwelling Now, this is an amazing truth, an amazing truth. That what you do now will bring eternal blessing in the future. The dishonest manager in our Lord's parable, in light of his unemployment, was shrewd so that on his departure, he would be welcomed in the homes of those he had helped. And Jesus is saying very simply, Do likewise. Do likewise in the way you prepare for eternity. Now that ought to get your creative juices going. How can you make eternal friends with the wealth that God has bestowed upon you? That'll take a little thinking perhaps. How do you prepare for eternity? So, let's ask ourselves that question. Do I use my worldly possessions in such a manner that I will be received by others in glory? Do I use my wealth in such a manner that there will be persons in eternity who will gladly receive me. Have I made with my wealth eternal friends? Now you understand Jesus is not saying that this is a way into the kingdom. We are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. We heard that last week. But it's important to realize, again, who he's speaking to. He's speaking to his disciples. We don't buy our way into heaven, but once you are a disciple by God's grace, every detail of your life should give expression to the fact that you have been destined for eternity with your Lord. And that every detail of your life then will be assessed by the manner in which you respond to that grace. It's quite a weighty thought. And that's what the verse in Revelation is, always, or is, is all about. Chapter 14, 13, where John tells us, for their deeds follow them doesn't precede them it doesn't open the way for them to enter into glory no it follows them every good deed invested for eternity every gift used to bring christ glory will follow them one by one they'll you'll see them they'll just follow the person because those graces and gifts have come from God, and they'll return to God. And all those who have been recipients then of your stewardship will welcome you greatly into heaven's eternal dwelling. Or as Peter, perhaps Peter was thinking this in our passage this morning, there will be an great opening, a great entrance for you in glory. In other words, Jesus is impressing upon our hearts this morning that you and I for all eternity will be the full blossoming of what we are here. What we are doing for Jesus now. You know, as the people of God, we're not going to be essentially different in heaven than we are here. We're going to have our personalities. We're going to look like we look here, but perfectly. Created in God's image, but then without any blemish. And that's why it's so important for us to use the Lord's gifts. And whatever he gives us, faithfully now. Because we're actually building for eternity. And that ought to be a great motivation for you to live the Christian life. To be faithful with all your wealth. Remember, it's not when or if your wealth is going to depart. It will. It's if. So use your wealth, whatever it might be, stewardly to the end that you'll have eternal friends to the glory of our God. So, faithfulness in our wealth. But then secondly, faithfulness in small things. You see how this works. And this is another great principle that Jesus teaches about being faithful. He tells us in verse 10, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. You deacons, you might hear this regularly. I hope not, but perhaps when you go visit some family and you inquire about their giving or their tithing, And they say, don't have that much. But when I will have a little bit more, I'll give more. You know what Jesus says? That's not true. That's an excuse. That's faulty thinking. An easy way to determine what we will do with more is what we do with less. That's a principle of the kingdom. Jesus says one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. It's the small things in our lives that reveals what's in our heart. Don't be fooled. You don't wait for a better day or a better opportunity. Know what's here now, the small thing determines who you are, as you're faithful. And if you're not faithful in the little things of life, all that God has given to you now, it's preposterous to think that you'll be faithful with great things. This is a great principle in the kingdom of God. And you remember, this is the principle that the Apostle Paul uses in regards to the offices in the church. If a man, he says, doesn't manage his house well, why would you think? Or what would others in the church think that he'll manage the family of God well? It's preposterous to think that he will. Doesn't make sense, does it? And it doesn't because this is a biblical principle. But notice what Jesus says here. It's, it's so striking. It's, it's, it's so convicting, actually. Let me bring it out the emphasis this way. What is, what's the contrasting term for faithfulness? You'll say, unfaithfulness, right? Well, notice what Jesus says. What verse 10 one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. What's the contrasting term our Lord gives for unfaithfulness? Dishonesty. That's harsh. That's convicting. And why is that? Because there's no neutrality, you see. Jesus saying, I am either faithful to that which God gives me, even the very little that the Lord has given me, and he expects me to use it for the kingdom of God, or else I'm dishonest. I'm dishonest. And here is where we come forward. Circle then to this parable. Why is it that Jesus says, you're not just unfaithful, but you're dishonest? Why? Because everything I have, the very breath in my lungs, comes from God. Everything comes from God. As Paul says, in Him we live and move and have our being. I am being dishonest with what has been given to me. In verse 12, you'll see that. And if you have not been faithful in that which is in others, who will give you that which is your own? And he means the Lord. The Lord. And look how the Lord then further presses the point. Jesus calls our wealth, including our money, our talents, our gifts and so forth, very little things. Verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? You see what Jesus is saying? All the wealth that he gives us on this earth, all the wealth here we might consider to be Monopoly money, just play money, just play money. And he's determining what we're going to do with it and how we deal it out. And if we're dishonest with the play money, he won't entrust us in the world to come with true riches. But if we are faithful in the little things of this life, that he gives us now, that belongs to him, privilege of relationships that we have. Relationships as pastors, as elders, as deacons, as congregants, as husbands, as wives, as children, as fathers, mothers, faithful with our talents, faithful with all our resources. On that last day, Whenever it might be, our Lord Jesus Christ will say to you, and you will hear it, well done, good and faithful servant. You will receive heaven's riches. Your inheritance in Christ. Faithful with your wealth, Faithful in small things. And lastly, faithful in your allegiance to Christ. And here Jesus, in these last verses, really gets to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart. Now we could have just jumped down to verse 13. We could have just gone right there and we would have had the message Because each of us serves a master. And this determines your heart. It's something like the Tenth Commandment. Tenth Commandment will reveal everything about you. And you could just jump down to the Tenth Commandment. But to help us along, our Lord Jesus has given us these 12 previous verses. But here's the question. What master do you serve? What gets you most excited in life? What drives your ambitions? What do you talk about most? Who do you love? Who are you devoted to? And whose service are you? Again, there's no neutrality here. There are only two masters Jesus Christ or unrighteous wealth. You can't serve both. Our hearts, you see, have been created to have the capacity only to serve one master. To have only one dominating love. We've been created like that. Now sometimes, sometimes we try to serve both, don't we? One foot here, one foot there. We try to serve both. But that's why so many Christians are miserable. You can't do it. You can't do it. It might work for a while, but our Lord Jesus says it plainly here. You're going to end up, it is a process, but you're going to end up either hating the one and despising the other, or devoted to one, despising the other. Loving one or hating one. There's no neutrality. So the question for us is very simple. Do you love Jesus Christ with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, all your resources, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, with the entirety of who you are? That's quite a broad question, but it impacts all of your life because it's only as we love him that you can give yourself and everything you have, all your play money, all the unrighteous wealth as Jesus speaks of here in devotion to him, and you will be faithful in little, because it's the little things that reveals the heart. It's only as you love him and are devoted to our dear Savior, that you will invest for eternity, that there will be a great entrance for you there. And so Jesus is saying, in light of your future destiny, act shrewdly now. And maybe you have to change course. Maybe you have to become devoted to the one. Maybe this reveals your heart today. But oh, what a blessed thing to give yourself to Christ wholeheartedly, to say, Christ, here I am. Use me. In light of eternity. In light of all that you have done for me. For the redemption that is now mine in you. Take my life. Devote it for your glory. And give me every grace to do that. And so we need to be reminded, don't we? Of our future. Because we're... we're we're like that man in Pilgrim's Progress, you remember he he was always with his muckrake working and he didn't realize the glory that was above. And that's why we need to come to worship, to hear God speak to us so that we might reframe our thoughts week by week. And yes it is every week, that's how short The week is because our hearts are so prone to wander, so prone to be enticed by all the glitter of the world. We need every seven days to be here so that God might teach us, encourage us once again of what's truly important. He wants our hearts because he's created us. For himself. And this is what this table does. It always points to the future. And Jesus says that when we come to this table, we ought to celebrate in remembrance of him. But we're not going to do this forever. It's time bound. We're only going to do this until he comes. This is not what we'll do in glory. No, it gets much better. This is just the wedding rehearsal. It's the door doors that causes our hearts to anticipate that great day. The banqueting table of our Lord Jesus. And as Asaph understood, as all the Bible, all the saints in the Bible, all the saints that have gone before us understood... The Lord is our portion forever. And we're reminded of that again here. The table reminds us to live life from the future into the present. And seek by God's rich grace to live all of life and everything we have as the backdrop as we devote ourselves more and more to him. Just like our Savior, who not only taught us, but demonstrated this in very truth when he lived. You remember how the writer of Hebrews puts it? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of majesty himself. Oh, my friends, that's worth it. As we are fed in a small, we might say insignificant way at this table on bread and wine, may God refresh our hearts and confirm within us that we are destined for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And there will be warmly, excitedly received by Jesus Christ and all the friends. We have made here into their eternal dwellings. Isn't that grand? Our Heavenly Father, we love you. We love your Son, and we love your Spirit. And Father, even now, our hearts have been convicted that we haven't served you even this day and this past week with undevoted love and affection. Lord, we have served other idols, and we have made them to be our gods. But Lord, you know our hearts, and we're so thankful that you have brought us back home so that we might hear the voice, the tender voice of you, our Father, through our Savior and our advocate, Jesus Christ, the one who loved you, the one, the only one who could say, I've always lived to please my Father. We thank you, Lord, that you receive, then, all that we do in Christ. And you know our hearts, Lord, that we desire to do this, but so often the flesh battles against the spirit. But We thank you that we have ultimate victory in Christ Jesus. Lord, teach us then, give us the grace, the evangelical grace of repentance even now so that we might rededicate our lives to your service and to use all that we have for your glory and for your purpose to make eternal friends to be welcomed into the eternal dwellings oh god we ask that you would bless your people now so that whatever it might be in their lives as you have revealed to them there might be a course change and that we might live again with great purpose, serving our dear Savior, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And So hear our prayers. Make us faithful in all that you give us,